As we gather on this Resurrection Sunday, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 20. We're going to begin our reading at verse 11. Beginning at verse 11 we read, Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. Again, He is risen. He is risen indeed. That is our Paschal greeting. A greeting that the church has declared to one another on Easter Sunday morning over the centuries. I was uh, talking with Lamar, better known as Money, by David and Bill. Amen. Uh, Just this morning in the fellowship hall, in in, in the Greek-speaking church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they would declare Christos Aniste which is Christ is risen. Paul tells us that the resurrection of Jesus is the totality of our hope in the gospel. In speaking to the Corinthians, he said, without this day in the life of the church, without the celebration of Easter, without our Lord's actual risenness, then our faith is void and vain. Our preaching is vain. We have nothing to say to one another. We have nothing to believe in. And he said, if the dead do not indeed rise, we are above all men the most pitiable. For as Jesus uh, told in his story in the Gospels, if that's it, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is no hope. But this day, this day in which we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, this is the totality of our hope in the gospel. The, um, the interesting thing, which is part of uh, Paul's discussion with the Corinthians, is 
He, he said that um, some among you say that the dead do not rise. And the fact is, no, the dead do not rise. In a normal world, in a natural world, in a world devoid of God, in a world devoid of anything beyond itself, no, the dead do not rise. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. That's, that's, that's the point of the scriptures, is that things have happened that are not natural. We call them the supernatural, or better yet, the supranatural, that which transcends the natural world. We call them miracles. And we can pick them all apart and say, well, we know that we can't believe in the virgin birth because that's absurdity. Or we could say, well, we don't believe in a literal resurrection of Christ because that's absurdity. Those sorts of things don't just happen. The Gospels would say exactly Finally, you're getting close to what we're saying. Something has happened that doesn't just normally happen. That never has happened before. That never will happen again. Never again will someone be born of a virgin. Never again will someone be the incarnate God here in flesh dwelling among us. But the Gospels point us toward a resurrection that will indeed happen again. Because our Lord has been raised from the dead, we too will one day rise from the dead. His resurrection is our hope. His resurrection is the complete fullness of our Gospel, our message. It is not just... The end point. It's not an addendum to the story. It is not the conclusion. It's what the whole thing is about. That God has come to redeem humanity completely, fully, and utterly. There are some implications to His resurrection. Um, if, we, if we think uh, for a moment theologically about what, what happens in the cross and then in the empty tomb we find that in Christ's sacrificial death in our behalf, we find forgiveness for our sins. He has purchased our pardon. He has redeemed us. He has ransomed us, as the early church would say. But in His risenness, we find not just forgiveness for our sins, but we find re the restoration of our souls. He has come to put us back together, to restore us, to make us new. We speak of new life that we have in Christ. We speak of being made alive in Him, being adopted into His family. We speak of the rebirth. And I'm so thankful that as David was reading, he ran across that name Nicodemus. Um, as I was reading through some of the Scriptures last night, I, ran across, I was reading through that passage. I couldn't help but get choked up for a moment. I've been telling you that He's, he's going to come back up. Three times we've seen him in the story. The first, he approaches Jesus in the dark of night and he says, Lord, we know that you're a teacher come from God, but I've got some questions. No one else knows. No one else was told about it. Jesus didn't go rat him out the next day. Didn't call him out in front of all his peers. He let him come. He let him come on his own terms. Again, George MacDonald. God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy if, if it weren't for what we read about Nicodemus here, I, I would be at a loss to say what, what we're to make of his life. 
And ultimately, ultimately, we don't know how that ended. But what we do know is that here he is joining forces with Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a man who, who had purchased a, uh, a, a, a plot of land in a garden and had hewn a tomb out of a stone, out of the hill. And Nicodemus comes with Joseph of Arimathea, and the Scriptures tell us that he had a hundred pounds of spices. And he had yards and yards and yards of linen cloths. And he came with Joseph of Arimathea, and they beseeched Pilate to let them bury their Lord. And they wrapped him. They treated his body. And they laid him in a tomb. It was Nicodemus to whom Jesus was speaking when he said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the empty tomb and our Lord's risenness, the resurrection of Christ declares to us that we find in Him not just forgiveness for our misdeeds, not just forgiveness for our faults and failures and our sins and our iniquities, but we find restoration. We find new birth. We find new life. He gives us a fresh start. He makes us to be new creatures remade in His image. And He sets us on that path of restoration. And the Scriptures promise us that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We find restoration for our souls because Christ indeed has been resurrected. He has defeated not just death, but also sin. The resurrection, the proclamation that He is risen, He is risen indeed. That Paschal greeting declares to us not just that our death has been dealt with, not just that we'll have hope of life after death, not just, hey, one day we'll get to heaven, but it says something also about Christ's victory over our sin. He has destroyed sin. He has ended it. He has cut off the head of the snake. And while the snake still slithers, while the snake still goes about, the head has been cut off, our sin has been dealt with, and there is in Christ the the provision for our souls to be restored in Him, to be made new in Him, and to be made complete in Him. And of course, there are the implications of this life and the one thereafter. We have in this life newness of life. Paul told the, uh, the early church that if any man is in Christ, if any man has put his faith in Jesus and is resting in Him and who He is and what He's done to, to redeem us, if any man is in Christ, He is a new creation. This life has been raised up. In fact, in a, uh, at the close of our service, we'll hear from Paul in speaking to the Romans in, in which he said um, that if the Spirit of God lives in us, then He'll raise up this mortal body, this body that's subject to death. He will raise it up and give new life in this very body, in this very life. And there's the hope that we have of the life that is to come, that these bodies will be raised back up, that they will be restored and glorified. They will be made new. Again, Paul says this 
is what it's all about. I love Christmas, but Paul tells us that Christmas without Easter is vain. It's worthless to us. So what if God became man if He did not fully redeem man? But He has. And Paul, that's what Paul says to the Corinthians. But Christ has indeed been risen. And He's the first fruits of those who believe in Him who will also be risen. In John's account of the Gospel, as Mary stands beside the tomb and as as uh, she's rushed there with, with John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he begins to reflect upon himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Never names himself, but starts calling him that after Jesus washes his feet, which is an amazing, amazing image for us that I'm the one he loved. I'm the one whose feet he washed. As Peter and John rush with Mary back to the tomb and Mary stays there after they've seen what they've seen and they've gone back to the other disciples, John gives us some, um, some elements of the resurrection that we need to wrestle with this morning. And the first of those elements is the evidence of resurrection. I'm thinking here of the linen and the lady. The linen... He tells, us, uh, he tells us they come, they see the tomb, they, they look down into it, and they find that the linen garments, the, the, the cloths of linen are lying there, but that the facial handkerchief, the, the, the cloth that had been over the face of Jesus, that it was not just lying there. It was not as though someone had come and stolen His body. Instead, it was neatly folded in place. John gives us that small little detail reminding us that something has happened here. Something has happened that they can't hide away, uh, they can't run away from the facts of it. The lady, Mary Magdalene, sorry ladies, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, you couldn't even speak in court. Your word, your testimony was invalid. It was worthless. It meant nothing. An ancient Near Eastern court would rather hear from a slave, would rather hear from the, from the one who was supposed to be washing the disciples' feet, rather than hearing the testimony of a, of, of a lady. But the reason why John includes it is because this is what happened. You can't, you can't hide the facts. You can't cover over the details. You can't say, well, Peter, you know, the rock, the... the uh, the, uh, the leader in the church, he was the one that found it. They have to be honest. The, Mary Magdalene found an empty tomb and she ran back. And she's the first one that sees the risen Lord. Not Peter, not John, not the disciple whom Jesus loved. Certainly not the one that denied Him three times, right? But Mary Magdalene. These little details that John, that John lets us in on in his account of the Gospel point uh, toward the evidences of the resurrection. And Paul, again, in speaking to the Corinthians, he spoke of countless other evidences. He, he speaks of those to whom Jesus appeared. And he, he includes himself in that. And he says, in fact, he appeared not just to all the disciples, not just to the ladies, not, not just to groups of people, but he spoke, he met even with a crowd of over 500 people, and he says the greater part of that crowd still living. Go ask them 
if you doubt this. I don't know about you. Uh, I don't know if you realize this or not, but it is factually impossible, scientifically impossible. It does not happen. It's never been evidence. No one even believes that it is possible to have mass hallucination. The closest thing you could come to with a mass hallucination is if a mass of 500 people were all doped up on something, but then their hallucinations will all be different. But Paul says, go and find them. The majority of these 500, they're still living. They're living among you. They're your neighbors. They're your co-workers. They're all around you. Go ask them if indeed Christ has not appeared to them. The risen Christ. John tells us that there's reason to believe in the resurrection of Christ. Sure, it doesn't happen. That's why it's important. Because this sort of thing doesn't just happen. The dead don't normally rise, but Christ who was crucified, the creed tells us not just who was crucified, but who died and was buried, he rose again. Three days later, John speaks to us not just of the evidence of resurrection, but he speaks to us also of a type of resurrection. The body. And this is of the utmost importance. This is what Paul was so passionate about in speaking to the Corinthians. This is what has kept the church going for 2,000 years. His body was raised. The empty tomb means nothing without the presence of the risen Lord. Without His body... The empty tomb means nothing. But the disciples, the early church, the church for 2,000 years, the greater part of it, has believed in a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. Again, absurd, never happens, exactly. But He has been risen. Death could not hold Him. His body was actually raised from the dead. In fact, He was able to be touched You remember later on in the story, you'll get to it uh, later on this evening if you haven't already done the the Lenten reading reading for today. You'll get to it, Doubting Thomas. I feel bad for the guy. We, We think so poorly of him, but somebody comes to you and says, your best friend who died a few days ago, you know what, he's back. That'd be a tough one. We know the end of the story. We're able to look back and critique faithless Israel, faithless disciples. What are those knuckleheads thinking, right, Bill? (laughs) Thomas, come on. You've been with the man for three years. He's been telling you. It's funny that John tells us they didn't yet know the scriptures that that he must rise again. Jesus had been telling them, we're going to Jerusalem, boys. And the Son of Man is going to be given over into the hands of sinners and He will be crucified and died. In fact, that's why Peter says, God forbid it, never will will that happen to you, my Lord. And Jesus rebukes him, get behind me, Satan. Jesus' rebuke is, you're telling me I'm not going to die on your behalf? You're telling me? That I'm not going to be resurrected? That I'm not going to be raised up? That I'm not going to redeem your humanity? 
But Jesus approaches Thomas and he says, Oh, one who doubts. Notice Thomas said that there would be a couple of things that would happen before he'd believe. He said, unless I see the wounds, unless I touch them, I'll never believe. It's impossible. That thing, that, that sort of thing just doesn't happen. And what does Jesus say? He, he, he walks in through the wall. We'll get to that in a moment. He walks in through the wall. He just shows up in the room. He says, Thomas, here, look, look at my wounds. Touch, touch my hands. Here, put your finger in my side where they pierced me with a spear. And Thomas, is, his, uh, his response should be our response this morning. My Lord and my God. He's able to be touched. He invites Thomas, touch, here, here. He tells Mary, don't yet cling to me. I'm not yet ascended to the Father. But he is able to be touched. He's able to eat. That's, uh, the kids always ask the most difficult <coughs> theological questions. Um, and uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Imogene asked me, what we, in heaven, what are we going to do if without sleep and without eating. I said, well, Imogene, I'm going to eat in heaven, I think. Um, I don't have to eat. No, you don't have to sleep. You don't have to renew your body. Your body would be glorified. But it seems that it's at least possible to eat in a resurrected body. Jesus, after all, not only ate with the disciples, he cooked for them. He made a little makeshift uh, beachside grill. He was cooking fish. That's a pretty interesting breakfast. He tells the disciples, come on, boys. This is the resurrected Lord. This is not a story of what happened before his death. This is after his death. He's cooking and eating, dining with them. He breaks bread for those on the road to Emmaus, which brings us to another thing. He's able to walk, move about. Sure, he walks through walls. Sure, there are times when they don't recognize him. But it is the same Lord. He even bears his scars. Bears the wounds of our redemption. So don't tell me that early church believed just in some spiritual, theological, doctrinal, spiritual resurrection. That our faith is the victory. No, our faith in the risen Lord is what gives us the victory. It is His literal, physical, bodily resurrection. That is the type of resurrection that John is wanting us to believe. That is the type of resurrection that Paul is vehement about the Corinthians getting into their skulls. You have to believe that He has indeed been raised. If not, we have nothing. If not, again... Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. This life is short. It will end. Enjoy it while you have it. But the gospel proclamation is that he is risen indeed. Sure, his body is in some ways different. He doesn't have to eat to be sustained. He doesn't have to sleep or anything like that. He's not in need of constant restoration. He's able to just show up in the room, puts a new uh, 
uh, new spin on, you know, what, uh, would you do that if Jesus were watching? What would you do that if Jesus showed up in the room, walked through the wall? Yes, he's, his body is in some ways different, but it's the same body. It's the same body. It bears its scars. Jesus says here, touch, feel. The tomb is empty. His body is no longer there, but his body has been seen. Last week I shared with you a poem that uh, is my favorite from Palm Sunday, The Donkey by G.K. Chesterton. This week I'm going to share with you again. You've been here for a few years. You've run across this one a couple of times. By John Updike, Seven Stanzas at Easter. And I remember the first time I ran across this was my first year in seminary. And I was heading to uh, Dr. Oswald's office to meet with him about something. He was my Old Testament professor. This Old Testament professor, one of the greatest biblical scholars living in the world today. His nickname, Mr. Isaiah. He has this posted during Lent on his door. And I ran up to it and I read all of it. And I was just blown away. I said, I will, I will read that every Easter till the day I die. I have so far. It's not been that long. John Updike, seven stanzas at Easter. He says, make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died. Withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel in the tomb, make it a real angel. Weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, Lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. He is risen. He is risen indeed. John gives us evidence of resurrection. He gives us a particular type of resurrection, but he gives us also the demand of resurrection. Mary, overcome with grief, eyes filled with tears. She turns from the angel and sees a man suspecting him to be the gardener. Sir, if you've taken him, let me know where he is. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of him. And Jesus' voice to her calls out, Mary. And she cries out in her Aramaic, Teacher, 
Rabbanai. The demand of resurrection is the voice of Christ to us. The demand given to us, His voice to us in light of His resurrection demands a response of the mind. Josh McDowell, a um, popular apologist and cultural um, uh, exegete, he wrote uh, a couple of books, the first being titled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I believe the second was, was more Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And his point is that there's evidence here. There's a story being told. There's a particular resurrection that the Scriptures are portraying for us that the church has believed for 2,000 years and we've got to do something with it. There's a demand upon our minds to do something about the resurrection. Either we believe it or we kind of believe it and we tweak it to make it fit better or we discard it as myth and legend. But the fact is that the door has been knocked on and we must respond whether we ignore it or answer it or say no thanks, we already have 12 boxes. There's a demand placed upon us and our minds must respond. Not only must our minds respond, but also our hearts must respond. This demand of Christ's resurrection, this demand that's put upon us, demands a response of our hearts. We will either embrace the crucified and risen Lord or we will not. We will either embrace Him or we will betray Him with a kiss. We will deny Him with cursing. I do not know Him. But the fact is that His resurrection makes a demand upon us and we cannot escape it. We either embrace or we fail to embrace. And this response of our mind and response of our hearts that the resurrection makes, uh, that it beckons us to make, brings also with it the demand of response with our lives. Because Christian faith is not just a mental faith. It's not even just a good feeling that we have and a desire that we have. It's not just about our wills being given to Him. It's about our entire lives being given to Him. And the resurrected Lord, the one who still bears His scars, the one who bears the wounds of our redemption, He stands before us and His voice calls out to us and demands that we respond to His resurrection. And we must do that with the totality of our lives. Not just with our brains. Not just with our, our, our ticker in here. We must do that with the fullness of who we are. And that life response really kind of involves two, two, uh, two stories. The first is the, inter, the intrapersonal story. Do we consider ourselves, as Paul said, we are dead to sin and alive to God? Because if not, if we still think that sin is something that can be compromised with, it's like compromising with terrorists. The terrorist of our soul, he seeks compromise. And too many Christians fall for the lie that we can play around with it, that we can deal with it, that we can handle it. But the fact is that the response 
of our lives that this resurrection demands. The response of our lives that the resurrected one demands upon us. That his voice calls for us is that we must hate, fight, and defeat sin. Paul said, I die daily. Jesus told his disciples, if you're going to be one of my disciples, you've got to take up your cross and bear it. You must deny yourself in doing that. Again, Paul said, you are dead to sin. You're alive to God. He says also, your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's not just an intrapersonal response in our lives. There's also an interpersonal response to our lives. Mary knew exactly what she had to do. She had to go tell the disciples. He is risen. The tomb is empty. John and Peter ran with her. And when they noticed the tomb is empty, they knew they had to do something. They had to go somewhere. They went back to the disciples. Can it be? What's, what is happening? The disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're talking with Jesus. They don't recognize who he, who he is yet. I'm wondering if they're perhaps disciples of disciples. They, they had not personally known him all that well. Maybe they had seen him before. Maybe they'd been in the multitudes that had been fed. And they're walking with him. And they're grieving. They don't know the... the they don't know uh, the reality of the situation. All they know is what they've been told about the story. He was crucified and he died and he was buried and his body's missing now. And Jesus breaks bread for them. And boom, he's gone. Again, he's he sneaked. And they say, were our hearts not strangely warmed in his presence? The early church knew that the response that we make to the resurrection implores us to respond to Him with our words and with our lives, not just for our, our sakes, but for the sakes of others. That we share the good news that we have in Him. That we share our crucified and risen Lord with others, with our relations. Christos Aniste. Christ is risen. The Gospels declare it. They give us evidences and countless other evidences that we've not mentioned here. That his body was indeed raised from the dead is unequivocally proclaimed in the church. And that risenness demands that we respond. In light of the demand made upon our lives to respond, I want to ask you to please take your communication cards. Um, make sure that you have the front filled out. Make sure that at the close of the service that you drop them off in the often plate at the back of the sanctuary. But on the very back, You've got a place of response. 
You've got the same responses also on the back of your bulletin. Please hang on to the bulletin. Uh, it'll, uh, you'll see the, uh, the names of folks that uh, these Easter lilies have been placed either in memory or in honor of. Um, you'll be reminded of the scriptures and music that we've sung. But his resurrection makes a demand upon us that we respond to him. And I wonder if your response this morning would be most appropriate to be to trust the crucified and risen Lord. Perhaps you say, you know what, I've, uh, Christian faith for me has always just kind of been a head thing and I've, I've never really trusted him with my life. I've never put my faith in him to the extent that I'm not in control anymore, but that he is. I wonder if you would say, my response is that I'm going to trust in him this one who was crucified, and this one who's been raised from the dead. He's my Lord. Perhaps your response would be that, you know what? I, um, I trust Him. He is my Lord. He is my God. But you know what? There's an awful lot of, of, uh, of um, thinking that I need to do about the resurrection. I've, I've always just kind of assumed certain things, and I want to develop a greater understanding. Please, please, please. If this is your response, uh, make sure that you, uh, that you get some good sources this week to start reading through or listening to. And if you have any question of, of those sources, you can let me know and, um, and I'll get you pointed in, in some good directions. Um, but our response, I, I, was, I ran across a quote this week from C.S. Lewis about the fact that um, that God's demand upon us, the demand of Christ upon our lives, is, is not just an issue of the heart, it's, it's an issue of also our head, that our brains, He demands everything. And so if we're not willing to think about our faith, then our faith is, is, pretty, um, is pretty lacking. And um, I wonder if your response would be that you want to develop a greater understanding. And then lastly, and this, is, this one's really hard for, for most of us. Some of us are very are very great with, uh, you know, talking with folks about the Lord, talking with folks about uh, the relationship we have with Him. Um, sometimes the easiest way to do that is talk about your church home. Most people don't get freaked out about church talk. They get freaked out about Jesus talk, you know. <laughs> um, That's right. It's right. Amen, right? <laughs> like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who's there with y'all? <laughs> <laughs> 2,000 years later, I don't... <laughs> um, I, I mentioned last week, and I also mentioned an email this week, these lilies, which are simply stunning. David, they look better today than Friday. Give them a couple of days to perk up, and they, they're nice. Um, if you've purchased a lily in memory or honor of someone, please be sure and take that home with you. Um, if, you, if you're wondering if there are any leftovers after everybody's left, hang around until after everybody else has left. And if there are, we'll send, send, send some home with you. But um, one of the things I mentioned, back to my original thought there, one of the things that I mentioned was these make great gifts to neighbors. Um, uh, I guess this will be the third year that we've purchased these. And every, every year when, we, when Lindsay and the kids and I buy one, we, uh, we always take them to some neighbors. And, you know, we live in a typical neighborhood. Most people don't talk with each other. You know, you honk the horn when you're passing. That's about it. Um, 
But to knock on somebody's door, middle of afternoon, don't interrupt lunch today. Don't interrupt dinner tonight. In the middle of the afternoon, knock on somebody's door and say, uh, Happy Easter, just want to give you a lily. They'll be taken back. I promise you that. And, and the interesting thing is, either then or the next time they see you, they'll probably ask, where, where do you go to church? They know you've been to church, obviously. You're knocking on their door, telling them Happy Easter. Giving them a lily. You, they'll know you got it somewhere. But um, just little things sometimes is all it takes for us to open the door to strengthen a relationship that we have with someone or develop one and to begin sharing the faith that we have in Christ with them. And I wonder if you'd say, you know what? I may not be able to do something huge, but I'm going to do something intentionally and God we trust will make it huge. Um, and I'm going to do that for somebody's life regarding my faith in Jesus. Please um, take a moment and um, prayerfully consider responding. And um, as we prepare for our final song, I want you to bow your heads with me and say a word of prayer with me as we reflect upon